Zelensky show the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines prophecy and the deeper things of God now here is your host and time watchwoman Sheila Zelensky hello listeners and welcome to the Sheila Zelensky show for this September 11th 2015 that's right 14 years after the attacks we want to just say our heart goes out to those who lost loved ones on that fateful day. We know it was an inside job. I'm not going to belabor the whole September 11th thing, but I do want to say our hearts and our prayers and our thoughts are with those who lost loved ones on that notorious day. I originally had Carla Butad coming on the program today, but due to a scheduling conflict, she's on her way to a conference, a deliverance conference in Beaumont, Texas, and we did reschedule for next Friday. But in her place, I have a guy that I have wanted to have on for quite a long time since I read Tom Horn's book, Blood on the Altar, The Coming War, Christian versus Christian. And who knew when Dr. Tom Horn wrote that book, how timely it would be right now when we just saw Kim Davis thrown in jail for her stance, and yet so-called Christians came out of the woodwork with their claws and fangs. The jackals, the hyenas, everybody came out of the woodwork. Sodomy and she really is dividing a line in the sand. Now, Doug Woodward wrote an incredible chapter in that book, and you've seen him at the Prophecy and the News Conference, and he's wrote a litany of other books. He is an expert in Bible eschatology and prophecy, and it is such a pleasure to have him for the first time on my program today, Doug Woodward, welcome to the show, sir. It is indeed a pleasure to have you on the program. Hey, Sheila. I've been really excited about the possibility of of being on your show eventually, and I'm so glad we finally made this work. Well, I'm so excited to have you on as well, Doug. And I want to say kudos on the book with Tom Horn. And it's such a timely book. I cannot believe how timely it is indeed. We've got a lot coming at us here. They're throwing the kitchen sink at us here There's a lot happening in September. Things are about to unfold. The Pope is coming on his, what I call, the False Prophet USA Tour. There's a lot coming at us, and so we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about what exactly is going on and what's coming. And I also wanted to talk, first of all, a bit about a very interesting book title. You wrote a book, Is Russia Destined to Nuke the U.S.? Quite a title indeed. I want you to talk a little bit about that book and tell us a bit about yourself, Doug. Sure. Well, uh, let's hook them with the, with the title of the book. The title of the, of the new book is, Is Russia Destined to Nuke the U.S.? And uh, it's, uh, it's a book that's just been very recently written, and it's uh, presented sort of in a magazine format. It's about uh, 44 oversized pages. It would work out to about 20,000 words in about 80 pages. Uh, it's available on Kindle and all the ebook formats. The focus of the book really is to zero in on what's happening in Central and Eastern Europe 
and what is going on between Russia and NATO and the U.S. And uh, the shift in the last few days has been more on Syria, but we'll have to get in and talk a bit about the geopolitical situation, which is, uh, is what I'm spending a lot of time on now. I did take uh, some time out to write an article, written actually several articles will be published over the next few weeks, uh, one that our friend Ellie Marzulli just published in his e-zine, the e-zine, and uh, that is, uh, the title of the article was, uh, How Will September Be Remembered? And as, as you alluded to, there's so much going on this month that um, I really felt like I needed to sort of uh, uh, summarize it and then talk about the implications and then also talk about what our focus should be uh, in case some of the big things that we've been thinking about actually don't happen this month. So, uh, so we'll have to talk about that. Um, in terms of bio, um, I'm back in Oklahoma City. I grew up here in Oklahoma, uh, but I lived near you. I lived in Seattle for 21 years. I was uh, with Microsoft for a number of years. Uh, prior to that, I'd been with Oracle. Uh, I'd been with Ernst & Young, so I've had some really, I've been privileged to work with some great companies in my corporate career, but I've been writing prophetic subjects and historical subjects for the past six, six and a half years, I've been studying it for probably 40 years. But about six years ago, I felt the Lord was telling me it's time for you to uh, tell people what you think. And so I started uh, writing, and, and here I am six years later. I've written 10 books, and uh, I have been, as you mentioned, privileged to speak at a number of prophecy conferences. Uh, Oklahoma City, for some reason, seems to be like the, the world center of prophetic ministries, uh, there's so many, there's like four different uh, prophetic ministries in Oklahoma City. So, of course, I know know them all and have relationships with them. But, uh, but again, growing up in Oklahoma, I'm 61 years old now. When I was 15, I had a very nasty form of cancer that uh, caused me to lose my left leg. I was amputated. Uh, and um, and so that was back in 1969. And so I've, I've had, I guess you'd say, literally the experience of learning to walk in faith. And, and walk with the Lord and, and learn about uh, trusting and relying upon Him and also relying upon other people to help me out every so often. So um, much of my testimony really is built around that experience and you know the fact that the Lord is constantly ever-present with me because I'm very active. I've been, uh, as you can tell from my corporate experience, done a lot of things. I've worked with some great companies. I've traveled a lot. And yet uh, uh, the Lord has always walked with me and, and helped me in some sticky situations. But it's been, it's been an exciting life. I have uh, a wife of 40 years. I have two kids, a daughter that actually is following in my footsteps, so to speak. She lives back in the Seattle area and uh, just recently got married. And I have a son here in Oklahoma City. And uh, I have a new grandchild. And so I'm, I'm very pleased that my son and my daughter-in-law decided to have a baby and and uh, I'm, I'm having a great time being a grandfather for the first time. I've had lots of grand dogs, but never had had a grandchild until just about a year and a half ago. So, uh, so that's sort of me in a nutshell. Well, congratulations, first of all, for being a grandparent. That's very exciting. Now, you mentioned your book title. Now, it's such an interesting title for a book. I mean, and so I guess it begs the question, is that happening? I mean, just today we see in the headlines at Russia's Syrian air bases, U.S. scrambling for a plan. And I'm wondering, no matter what approach one takes to Bible prophecy, the warnings regarding global government are very much concentrated upon the West. And while dispensationalists are quick to point to Russia as the 
future Gog and Magog of the book of Ezekiel. This is, well, I mean, we can say it's conjecture, but at the same time, we have to look at the fact that many Bible scholars believe the Gog and Magog prophecy, like most prophecies of the Old Testament. The one constant, though, is that the global conspiracy of the West, and dare I say that whether we are witnessing its literal fulfillment, we are seeing a Western conspiracy to create a global government. And I mean, Putin, when I think about Obama, I call him the jihadist in the slaughterhouse. When you look at Bush and Obama, <laughs> Bush yeah. and Obama make Putin look good. And that's a scary thought, isn't it? Oh, it is. Yeah. Uh, now, there's there's no question if we if we set aside, and we, and we probably won't for very long, if we set aside Bible prophecy and we talk just about the geopolitics, of the situation and what's been transpiring, and certainly, I like you believe that that there there has been. It's almost as H. G. Wells called it an open conspiracy for yes. over a hundred years to create eventually a uh, a world government based. You know, the Enlightenment guys would say based upon reason and not religion, based upon uh, you know basically human rationality and not uh, religious revelation. And uh, and so there has been basically a, a socialist movement that's been going on. Certainly, uh, uh, you know we think of uh, we think of Marx and Lenin, but uh, in in many flavors, socialism has been really the sort of the dominant story. You know, in the last hundred years, uh, and and kind of fighting back and forth with a, an American version of socialism, and uh, which is probably more it's probably closer to fascism really than it is. Uh, uh, socialism and or yeah. In fact, uh, today I noticed that the um, uh, one of the Russian, I think he's essentially their Secretary of State, the equivalent thereof, uh, made the comment that the Soviet Union's goal is to continue to fight the war against fascism. And of course, he was basically saying the U.S. is a fascist government. Right. And, um, and so there is some really uh, incredibly interesting and tense. And frankly, frightening things going on geopolitically. I think, for the most part, the American public is unaware of that because we tend to be focused on entertainment news and uh, focused on who's running the, the new, you know, the, the new Late Show, Stephen Colbert, as opposed to really dealing with world politics and what's happening. And um, and, and as you uh, mentioned, you know, the, the issue with Syria. Uh, is is a very frightening situation because uh, there's so much instability. It's so ironic that um, the uh, the press secretary for the president talked in terms of of uh, the fact Kerry had called his counterpart in uh, in Russia and had said, "Gee, you you really don't want to be putting more military assets in the Middle East because it could make the situation more unstable." And I I just thought to myself, that's the most ironic statement I've ever heard. We've done more to destabilize the Middle East and failed to stabilize the Middle East in the last uh, four or five years in particular during this administration. So, um, you know, the, the fact that the Russians have, have seen really, a, in effect, a sort of a power vacuum in the Middle East um, with the U.S. not throwing its weight around, giving in to, in effect, the, the Iranian... Uh, agenda of uh, developing their technology, leading probably to a nuclear weapon. And, uh, you know, the, the Russians feel like that they've left, we've left the door wide open, so they might as well go ahead and come right in. And that seems to be what's happening just in the last very few days. 
You mentioned Syria there, and I think there's a growing belief, Doug, that the U.S. government, I mean, when you look at the Islamic State militant group, they're making, supposedly, and using crude chemical weapons in Iraq and Syria. I mean, that's what the U.S. has officially said to the BBC. You've got all these nefarious pieces of a big puzzle here. What is your sense on this situation, Doug? Well, you know, my sense of the overall situation is that it is very puzzling because you've got, in effect, I think the sort of the globalist view that the U.S., uh, wisely referred to the U.S. as sort of the muscle behind the New World Order, its military, its global military ability to project power. You know, it's, uh, it's essentially been virtually every war since World War I forward has been a, a war fought over energy. And, um, and the U.S. has uh, obviously been very concerned about maintaining the standard of the petrodollar. And uh, every time someone threatens to go away from the petrodollar, we decide that it's better to go ahead and go to war with them. We did that with Iraq in, in 2000. And it looked like that we were running up to a war with Iran. And, uh, and all of a sudden, we, we sort of changed course. We obviously, in the, through the, uh, the current administration, all of the, the so-called Arab Spring since 2011, there has been really a dramatic shift in, in U.S. policy. Uh, the critics like a John McCain, which I, you know, not necessarily a John McCain fan, but I think he's probably right, is that the U.S. Uh, administration is, is struggling to find any kind of a coherent strategy uh, in the Middle East. And, uh, it, you know, we've essentially deserted the, the one Democratic partner, uh, Israel, in the Middle East. They clearly have been very vocal about not appreciating the, uh, the deal that we've accepted. Uh, and so it, it is really, uh, it's, it's a big reversal in the, uh, in really a, a U.S. policy that was very determined to continue to enforce the petrodollar, to continue to assure that we would have access to Middle Eastern oil. And all of a sudden now, it, it looks like the, the tables have turned and we are willfully uh, allowing the, the Russians to come into the region. We're not going to do anything to push them back. And we've agreed to obviously create the, the Iranian deal to allow uh, Iran to advance its nuclear technology. Uh, and so it's, it's very puzzling. Now, supposedly, what is the sort of the method and the madness is that it was decided some time ago, uh, before Obama took office, that Iran was the natural leader of the Middle East and that we should ultimately turn away from Israel and Saudi Arabia and we should place a bet on Iran. And of course, it, it, you know, to most of the John Q. public, that's a curious strategy indeed, given that Iran is so vocal about death to America and death to Israel. But yet, that seems to be exactly what's happened. Um, we seem to have turned away from Saudi Arabia, away from Israel. We've uh, given up, I think, a great deal in terms of, uh, of allowing Iran to build uh, its nuclear technology to the point where it would not be difficult if they don't already have uh, nuclear weapon, that they would be able to uh, obtain one relatively soon. Um, and so, you know, it's it's very, very curious what we're trying to pull off in the Middle East right now. And uh, as Americans, um, we should be very concerned. That's really essentially the point 
I make in, in the latest book is Russia destined to nuke the U.S. is that, you know, apart from the Bible prophecy, there's so many reasons, economic reasons, military reasons, geopolitical reasons to suspect that, that Russia intends to respond to the U.S. geopolitical power. And it doesn't have lots of options. Uh, the sanctions, the falling price of oil, the, you know, the really the collapse of the ruble, all of these things put Russia and its health somewhat on the short fuse. And, uh, and so it's led me to, uh, to believe that, that there is a great possibility that Russia will take action uh, to neutralize the U.S. entirely in terms of Europe and the Middle East. And, uh, and so I think that there is a very high probability that we could see not just tactical nukes used in Europe or in the Middle East, but potentially strategic nuclear weapons used against major American cities, a uh, selected number of them, just to, in effect, get back at the U.S. and create, from the Russian perspective, a much more of a balance of power uh, geopolitically. I absolutely concur. And I think the Obama administration really, you know, they hope for Syrian President Assad to kind of move aside and make way for a democratic government in Damascus. And I think that's being dashed again, because I mean, there's obviously strong evidence that the dictator's strongest ally is joining a fight to keep him in power. So it's really interesting, this new alignment, though, isn't it? Because that historically, that hasn't been the case. No, it, it it really is. I mean, the the U.S. has has usually, of course, propped up uh, what we would consider to be uh, totalitarian dictators you know, around the world. That's been sort of the the almost obvious strategy uh, politically is that we would go with power players and we would, uh, in effect, enforce uh, a fascist type of government to hold back uh, communism. Whether we're talking about the Western Hemisphere or in Africa or uh, in the Middle East, that that has tended to be, you know, our strategy. One can can cite quite a few examples without yes. having to really stretch your your memory and historical matters to do so. And so, that's been kind of our our standard. But since Obama has come into office, there really is, I think, a very strong argument that he is certainly working to create more Muslim persons in his government, persons of influence. And the whole Arab Spring seems to have been initiated uh, as a means to take out the uh, sort of traditional leaders, uh, whether we're talking about Gaddafi or we're talking about Assad or we're talking about Morsi, whoever, um, that the U.S. seems to be unseating those governments in favor of some type of, of Islamic um, government. And, of course, that didn't stick in Egypt. Mubarak was taken out, then Morsi was taken out, and, uh, and they're back to essentially a military government again. And so you've, you've got this pattern. The Russians talk in terms of the U.S. using what they call color revolutions, uh, which are essentially, they say, it's a ploy of the CIA to go in and unseat these different powerful different nations, really, in, in order to continue to exert U.S. influence. And Russia is using this thematically as a way to uh, try to articulate to its own people that the U.S. is seeking to destroy Russia. And, and, and we are encircling Russia. 
with, uh, in effect, puppet U.S. governments. The Ukraine is, of course, the, the poster child right now for that point of view. Talking with a friend, Jeff Nyquist, who's really an expert in the whole issue of Russian and Soviet strategy in the past, you know, it's, it's certainly his, his uh, uh, expert opinion that uh, the Russians have been planning for a long time to um, conduct a war with the United States, that they, they perceive nuclear war, uh, unlike us, Americans and perhaps Canadians, think uh, nuclear war is, is unthinkable, whereas the Russians tend to perceive it as, uh, as inescapable, it's inevitable. And, uh, and so uh, they seem to be preparing their people mentally for the fact that they have nuclear weapons, that's their strong suit, and that the U.S. is bound and determined to destroy them. And if uh, Putin is going to make headway in recreating the Russian empire, then they're probably going to have to use nuclear weapons to, um, to in effect, reduce the U.S. power somehow uh, in the world. And so we seem to be heading that direction. Absolutely. And do you find, of course, today is September 11th. Again, we're 14 years after the original attack. Do you find that it's interesting that a lot of the headlines now today, Doug, are saying, oh, these officials were averting all these plans for these terrorist attacks? I mean, everywhere you look, it's, you know, oh, CBS, you know, news and all these mainstream talking bobbleheads are saying, you know what, boy, we're lucky that we're, we have such an absolutely fantastic federal officials that can divert these terroristic <laughs> plots. But yet it kind of feels like we're just one degree from the boiling point, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and uh, you know, every time September 11th rolls around, uh, we all sort of take a deep breath and wonder if there's going to be some additional terrorist action of, uh, of note. And, uh, and, and this month especially, uh, we've yet to get into the whole subject of all the events in September and, and what those might have meaning or whether they do have meaning prophetically. But, you know, the, the whole uh, you know, story about terrorism, about our government, you know, you, you kind of don't know whether the story, the lead story is the government is, is keeping us from terrorism or whether the government is facilitating <laughs> more terrorists to come into the country. I guess we'd say the conspiratorial view of history is that the government is attempting to create as much fear as possible in the minds of the people so that we will beg for a police state. We will accept the NSA and we will accept uh, Big Brother watching us because it is a means to keep us safer. And there's no question that, that chaos is not a chaos is not a friend, but um, of course the liberty that Americans historically have enjoyed um, it's really uh, something that you know it's worth it's worth living for, worth dying for, and and yet we seem to be forsaking it and giving it up so easily uh, in these days, and uh, because there is such an imminent threat all the time that we may see horrendous uh, terrorist attacks. And, uh, and certainly, um, you know, this is, a, this is part of the um, sort of the parasitic deception, part of the strategy, again, quoting friend Jeff Nyquist, is that uh, the U.S. will see uh, as a precursor, as part of the overture, it's what it's officially called, um, perhaps several suitcase nukes, or that, that's kind of a nickname for lower-yield, lower-powered nuclear weapons to, uh, to be set off 
in major, several major American cities, and uh, in, in that they will, the Russians will have set up the Arabs to be the fall guys, and, uh, and yet it will create so much, so much dis, uh, disruption, create such a, um, a shock to the economy that uh, the U.S. will become very self-centered, very self-absorbed, and Russia will uh, feel finally some relief in terms of the sanctions and the economic stress that uh, that they're experiencing. And uh, so you, you do get a sense, though, that this is this is all part of some orchestrated plan, and it's like kind of we're wanting to look over the ledge a little bit and see if we can figure out who's, who is orchestrating the plan, and, and it's, you know, it's always kind of hidden from us. And, of course, that... It's why so many of us talk in terms of the Illuminati and the elite and that there seems to be some power structure behind the scenes that's pulling these strings and that the guys that we see are just the front men, just the mouthpieces, but they're not really the power players that are making these things happen. Well, but it's not just the fact that prophecy is on fire in the world today. It's also the fact that what boils my blood, and I talk about this a lot, Doug, is the fact that it's crickets chirping in the pulpit about all the big issues, whether you have the Kim Davis situation, the Planned Parenthood debacle a few months ago, the absolute butchering of our brethren, the ISIS situation, these howdy duties in Lakewood, they're just, they like to talk about every day is a Friday and Forget the ISIS, live your best life now. And I always think that, you know, someday, Doug, when these historians are sifting through the ashes of what once was the free West trying to assess what happened, they're going to discover that freedom was hijacked because we let it. The devil and his minions are obviously very strategic. And I keep telling the American Christians, you're at war and you don't even know it. America's been pillaged and plundered and the greatest country in the world ever known. I always say, you know, America was not the last bastion, but the first and only. And yet we have a jihadist in the slaughterhouse who deserves, in my opinion, to hang for high treason. And yet we can throw a woman in jail for her Christian beliefs and her solemn oath to the Constitution of the United States. And yet, again, it's crickets chirping in the pulpit. Yeah, some of those crickets are, of course, uh, ministers who barely mention what's happening, really the colossal kinds of things that are going on in the world right now. Uh, there's so many issues, and some of them are big and some of them are, are smaller, but you know, certainly the, the, the things you're pointing out, you know, the, the news is filled with a lot of crickets, and probably we are missing the, the broader, more important brushstrokes to mix a metaphor of what's really happening in the world right now. There's no doubt that the behaviors that you know we we uh, are willing to to jail a Kim Davis for versus you know what laws that the president or the attorney general decide that they're not willing to enforce, uh, which are enormous laws. You know th- this is really the you know the sort of the ethos of our times. It is a it's such a confusing situation. The world is so upside down right now and. Uh, there's no doubt that, that looking at what our president in the United States is doing, it it really is so puzzling. It looks as if, and of course many are saying that he is uh, intentionally uh, destroying the nation. And, um, you know, it's hard to believe that, but you look at what's going on and you you really find it difficult to justify the behavior. It's just like we were talking a second ago. What really is his strategy? 
You know, is it just plain and simple that he has no strategy? Uh, or is it that the strategy is so unspeakable that we are not willing to admit it? So um, uh, it's it's very worrisome. And it, and it is, for those of us that are uh, schooled in Bible prophecy, it's, uh, it's certainly easy right now for us to draw some conclusions that we're right on the cusp of some, some enormous things happening in the world. Well, speaking of enormous things happening, and I know you mentioned doing an article for LA's easing, I want you to get into what do you think is on the horizon for this, well, weeks to come. Again, we've got the Pope coming to the US in a few short weeks. And I've talked a lot about the Pope over the years. And I've actually devoted a whole chapter to his little false prophet, One World Climate Authority tour after he released his encyclical a few months ago. I mean, this man, I actually heard a guy say on I think it was Rick Wiles show a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago, and I I thought, let me on that show right now. I'm going to straighten this bozo out. The guy said, I don't really think the Pope knows what he's doing. I thought, oh, the Pope knows exactly what he's doing. And I I dare to say that Obama knows exactly what he's doing. It's very conscripted. You know, this is the most duplicit government ever in the history. I mean, when he said he was going to fundamentally transform America into a socialist, fascist, technocracy, new world order, antichrist system, he was right, wasn't he? <laughs> well, it certainly looks like it. If it's not, it's a real good imitation of one. Was, uh, as you were talking about the Pope in this tour, I was thinking, well, not only do we have the Pope, but we also have a Madonna doing the tour, too. Yes. And of course, that, uh, you know, her... Her subject matter, I think, of, uh, of fallen angels, you know, the whole CERN thing about, uh, you know, opening these portals and what kind of demonic powers are going to come into, uh, into the world as a result. I mean, these are, these are just some of the lowlights of, of what's going on. Uh, but, uh, you know, the highlights, the big, the big issues that people are watching, of course, you know, there's, there's been, ever since I've been writing, of course, there have been individuals that have been predicting that the dollar is going to collapse that the stock market's going to collapse. And, uh, you know, I usually say, because I've been involved in financial uh, things as part of my sort of day job, um, you know, that if you predict the stock market's going to fail, you are inevitably going to be right. And if you predict the stock market's going to rise, you inevitably are going to be right, because eventually it will. And uh, and yet, we're at a point now in terms of, of what's happening with uh, the petrodollars, the um, the stock market collapse in China, the devaluation of the yuan, and its impact uh, on the dollar. Uh, we're at a very curious moment because if you look at the the power of the dollar right now, and you look at the the fact that we're still able to sell treasury bills at, at you know ten year treasuries at about two point one percent interest. Um, you know, people are just you know the that sovereign nations are trying to find places to put their money uh, that that they won't lose money as opposed to really earn interest. And and, and yet, uh, while we're, we can see that the dollar is so strong relative to the Chinese yuan or the Russian uh, ruble, we still sense that we're on the verge of a collapse because of, uh, of the fact that, that the petrodollar is shaky. Um, that euros are being used now, gold is being used now as a way to purchase oil. Um, that they, you know, that the, the amount of debt that the United States has taken on is so enormous. Uh, it's now well over uh, 100% of our GDP. I think it's 108% uh, 
Uh, it's not the worst in the world. Japan's at about 200%. Um, but Japan probably wouldn't be where they are if, uh, if it wasn't for the United States. So anyway, you look at uh, these economic things, and, and probably the most uh, pertinent issue that both secular as well as, as uh, uh, Bible students talk about is the, is the potential collapse of the American economy. And uh, my friend Benjamin Baruch, who is far more gifted and knowledgeable in the world of finance, particularly when it comes to the stock market and uh, large-scale debentures and sovereign debt and all these fancy big words, you know, it's, his sense is that we probably won't see a collapse in September, but we're probably right at the beginning of it. And uh, I, I've suggested to others that it's very likely we're going to see the stock market, although um, on September the 10th it gained about 600 points. You know, over the next three, four weeks, we may see the stock market fall three or 4,000 points. But I, I believe it, it will not really suffer a, a total collapse unless there is some kind of a 9-11 event, some kind of dramatic catastrophe that is so enormous that it upsets the economy. And, uh, and then we would see the stock market perhaps lose 50% or more of its value uh, in a period of just a couple of weeks. That's, that's very conceivable. We saw that in 2008. We saw that in 2001. And of course, that same pattern, which is uh, Jonathan Kahn calls the Shemitah year pattern, it's supposed to occur right in the middle of this month. Uh, the 13th is a Sunday, but the 14th, you know, it's, uh, oh gosh, that's only a few days away. And so if the Shemitah pattern were to hold, we would expect the stock market to begin a, a very precipitous decline uh, next week and uh, that it may lose a dramatic amount of its value. So um, um, I would just say that it will go up, it will go down. I don't perceive that the stock market is, is going to crash, and I don't see that the dollar is going to crash in the short term, but I think that the, that the big geopolitical events in the world, such as we're discussing about potential of conflict between Russia, NATO, the United States, what's happening in the Middle East, those are the kinds of things that could really dramatically shake up the, the economy. Well, speaking of shaking up, you mentioned something earlier that really begs the question, what are they doing over there at CERN? You know, it's so interesting. You've got, think of the head of Hindu Shiva, the transgender destroyer god. Notice the third eye, the polos crown and the crescent moon. Appropriately, the war god of Mars. Hindu legends found in Bhagavad Gita and the Purunas. You look at all these, what, what do these mean? I mean, you know, Shiva, the heavenly eye falling. And then you think of there are these massive earthquakes. Now you've got these folks over at CERN near Geneva, Switzerland. I mean, they're looking for the God particle. Why would they even use that <laughs> word? But, you know, will their latest discovery, what, A, blow up the planet or B? I mean, what are the, my gut tells me, that especially when you look at, Doug, the intense cross-pollination between the biotech, the nanotech, fusing robots with humans, they've been terraforming and geoengineering and changing our DNA through even parasites that look like fibers called Morgellons disease. You've got particle accelerators at the nano level. And then you've got, again, CERN up to what are they trying to do? Are they trying to unleash the spirits of the ages? I mean, there's something very nefarious going on here. My gut tells oh, yeah. me. Oh, yeah. It, you almost feel like humanity has a giant death wish. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, 
it's like we're we're playing around with things that we do not understand, uh, such as you talked about Shiva. You know, it's so interesting. Shiva is known as the, in effect, as the goddess, the destroyer. Um, that the that the spirit of Antichrist is, as our friend Tom Horn has pointed out, uh, you know, for the last number of years, really Abaddon, uh, Apollyon, really is the the god of destruction, yes. the destroyer. And uh, so you see that, and it kind of makes sense if you really take a step back and you look at the um, the issue of, of of sort of evil. What's the nature of evil? Um, the um, the you know the time, since time immemorial the conflict between the God of the Bible and uh, the adversary Satan. You know, it, it seems like that there is this principle of destruction that is um, you know that's in play, and that it really does oppose creative uh, loving principle that you know we we Christians believe was uh, is God and is incarnated uh, perfectly in Jesus Christ but you know it, it looks like that for some reason scientists are, are really wanting to test their limits as to what they can potentially do and you know exactly what is going to happen I know you know someone even like a Stephen Hawking is is saying you know you better not go spitting into the face of something you don't understand because it's liable to blow back on you. And, uh, and so, you know, CERN, you know, it's hard to know whether or not something really evil this way comes and whether CERN really will open that door or not because there are so many doors and different ways into that dimension. Um, so it's hard to know whether that really is going to be kind of the pivotal watershed event that unleashes uh, destructive power into the world. It could be, um, but the thing that is just frightening, just like you kind of going off listing and enumerating a number of the transhumanist things, the, the prospect of changing our DNA, uh, affecting the germ, the germ line, and not really understanding what the impact will be long-term of changing our DNA. Science is, is really just asking the question, can it do something that's not really asking the question whether it should. And so consequently, we, we're on the verge of doing something really bad to the human race. And I'm not sure it, what, in, you know, what name it's being done in. For, for whose sake are we doing this? Other than just for the sake of those that, that want to demonstrate that they have power to do it. And so that seems to be where, you know, the whole CERN thing is, is kind of a sort of a modern tale of, of Frankenstein. You know, just, it's a demonstrating that there's danger and overreaching, and, and we don't know what kind of danger we're going to cause, but it could be enormous. It could be very, very bad, and yet we're still willing to do that, and we're still willing to fund it with billions of dollars. So it's, um, you know, it, it, it does cause one, once again, to just say, what are we doing? You know, what are we, why are we doing these things? And, uh, and, and yet all of this stuff kind of comes, is coming to a head here in the month of September when, you know, the, the students of prophecy would say there's so many patterns that point to this month that, you know, it could, it could mean something really significant in, uh, in terms of uh, fulfilling uh, prophecies. I don't understand how 
Christians can be in a coma for the most part about what's happening when it comes to also Bible prophecies. And I mean, I say this very vocally and I get myself into trouble. I, I say the pulpits are responsible for the dung heap we're in, Doug, the clergy response mm-hmm. team and the 5013C yeah. dictums. You better preach what we tell you, this seeker-friendly politically correct minions in the pulpit, or as Steve Quayle calls them, the pukes in the pulpit. I mean, America... <laughs> Amer- I hadn't heard him say that, but that is that is that is very uh, has a nice ring to it. It has a nice ring to it. Well, America died because of its pulpits. Instead of these strong, godly men thundering away in the pulpit with the Holy Ghost conviction, these guys like you know Ravenhill and Wilkerson, they've been replaced with Howdy Doody over there in Lakewood. And I, I you know, these guys don't even <laughs> preach on sin or repentance. Lakewood Luker there, I mean, is pew plebeians. They they're Every day is a Friday to these guys. And Creflo Dollar Bill, who got his, what, $75 million jet, and Rick, good old Chris Lom Warren, who's a big cheerleader for the Pope, he's raking in a boatload of filthy lucre. And what are all these guys doing with their resources? Are they feeding, you know, the poor and the needy? Yeah, I don't think so. Are they, Doug? Well, you know, they, they might be doing some of that, um, but they're really missing the, the bigger, broader question, which is, you know, they're representing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They think they are. They say they are. Um, you know, the prophecy students argue a bit in Second Thessalonians 2 about the restrainer. And as you were talking about the pukes in the pulpit and their failure to, um, you know, to take a stand, to sort of stand against those things that are, you know, indicative of how far we have fallen from uh, the republic that we once were and from the uh, commitment to um, you know the God of the Bible, you know, you know, you could sort of say, well, you know, what is that restrainer? Who is that restrainer? Which is what we argue over. Well, clearly, the you know there is a restraining force that that uh, men in the pulpit were supposed to have that they have failed to have. They seem to be more intent on uh, telling people how it is that they can fit in, how they could be members of the club, be better uh, members of the community. Uh, have a better impact uh, locally, how they can have uh, essentially just be accepted uh, and feel good about themselves. And, uh, and so it's, uh, you know, so much of, of the, the gospel now has just become, uh, it's really, you know, I, I've done quite a bit of, of reading and studying and talking about this, sort of the, the, the pure Americana gospel, really started by Ernst Holmes uh, around 1905, 1910, uh, you had Norman Vincent Peale. You had Robert Schuller. You really look at the Rick Warrens and the and the you know the Joel Osteens of this world. They really are in that same sort of line of American uh, religion, which it's really based upon sort of a me uh, issue. You know, Rick Warren, ironically, his book begins. The famous book begins. You know, it's not about you, but yet almost the whole story of the way that the gospel has been portrayed, even by evangelicals is that it is about you, you know, that it's only about you. It's about, uh, you know, you being all that you can be. It's kind of like the old line from the army, you know, be all that you can be. And so much of the emphasis is that, and, and, and people want to hear that. That's why these, you know, these megachurches have become 15,000 strong, you know, auditoriums, because people like that kind of message that makes them feel good and, and, uh, and promises them health and wealth and, 
subtle, mm-hmm. make you feel yeah. good, minimize what got, you know, it's that fuzzy, warm, but isn't that interesting? It's that subtlety and Satan is the craftiest of all. You know, you were talking earlier, I was thinking, will October mark the 70th week of Daniel? There's talk about that as well as, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking mm-hmm. about the Jubilee year. You talked about the Shemitah. You know, we know that some right. pretty significant things have happened during these, uh, these, uh, especially in a Tetrad year, correct? So there, there's, so, right, there's right. so much going on yeah, you, that where do you start? Yeah, you've got, you got so many patterns that all kind of coalesce. You know, there's this confluence of, of the Shemitah year, you've got, of course, the the key Jewish holidays, the High Holy Days, Rosh Hashanah, yes. Yom Kippur, uh, Sukkot. You've got all of these things. Um, the you know, Tabernacles this year features the super moon over Jerusalem, the blood moon, the funnel of the four tetrads, and and uh, you know, I I'm not one that happens to believe that they that the tetrads are really a fulfillment. Of Revelation six twelve and Joel two thirty one, where it talks about the sun uh, becoming dark and the moon turning to blood, but I do feel like that they are kind of a shot across the bow, kind of a warning, you know, that that something is happening. There is something that's going on in the world, and uh, you know, looking at things like the you know the jubilee, are we dealing with a not just a jubilee year, but perhaps even the seventieth jubilee? And that's a really interesting thing, you know, the the, the idea that the Jubilee year uh, is every 50th year right. uh, that you had a major event in 1917 when Allenby took over Jerusalem um, uh, from the Turks, uh, the English took Jerusalem, and that kind of led to eventually to the formation of Israel, which uh, officially, of course, happened in 1948, but right. then in 1967, you had um, Jerusalem being recaptured by Moshe Dan, who promptly, of course, gave the Temple Mount back to the Waqif. But, uh, you know, that was that was a really bad idea. But nevertheless, that happened. And then if you go another 50 years out of 49, really, you look at 2016, 2017 in terms of the Gregorian calendar. And in that, that Jubilee year, if we are right, there is still debate about it, but it's probable that this is, in fact, a jubilee year coming up uh, with Rosh Hashanah beginning on the uh, on the 14th, just a few days away, that we are commencing a jubilee year. Now, jubilee year actually for Israel is supposed to be a good year. And the last two jubilee years, if 1917, 1967, in fact, were jubilee years, they were, they were good. Uh, in effect, Israel became, you know, they officially got uh, sort of an unction or a sanction to be in the Holy Land again, uh, and then they gained back the Temple Mount. And so one could speculate, well, if that pattern persisted, then maybe something good would happen uh, in terms of Israel gaining additional security uh, or something along those lines in this upcoming year. Um, of course, then you have the Shemitah idea, though, that, that says that something bad could happen. Uh, on the 14th or 15th in terms of the debts being forgiven, which is really what it meant, you know, as opposed to just the equity markets crumbling, which is what happens if the stock market falls. There's a couple of different things that kind of point in different directions. Then you add to it the fact that this jubilee may be, in fact, the 70th jubilee, which actually would take us all the way back, if you count backwards, it would take us back, I think it's like 13... You know, 89 BC, which is likely when Joshua, when they crossed into 
the Holy Land, um, and they made the Jordan River stand up on heaps, kind of like a mini, uh, you know, separating of the Red Sea. Right. And uh, they came, entered into the Promised Land at that time. Then, you know, then if if that in fact is true, then one would suspect, well, then we really are, because you know our God is a God of providence and seems to pay attention to patterns and likes to demonstrate that he's so in control of what occurs in world events, then, you know, it really does make one think, gosh, we're probably going to see something really dramatic in the next 12 months. And and I think that's probably true. I think we are going to see something dramatic in the next 12 months. I don't think that we're necessarily going to see the rapture on the 23rd of September, which some people have speculated, uh, or that we're going to see, you know, necessarily... Israel attack Iran on the 28th or 29th of September or something like that. But I think that we are probably at the cusp of something really uh, dramatic and, and ch- kind of changing historical you know, direction. I think that we're probably going to see that in this next 12 months. Well, I think you're so right. I think we're going to see a lot just take place even in the next few months. But no matter what yeah. happens or doesn't happen in September, the bottom line is, and, I, and I'm reminded of Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And of course, Titus tells us, you know, we have a blessed hope of the glorious appearing. And I think yes. that's why we really need to focus number one right now, you know, not get distracted by 40 million things going on, because I think we can get overwhelmed, can't we? Very much so. And especially with all these issues that are all kind of coming to a head in September. And I think you're, you're right on in the, um, uh, in the article I wrote for, uh, for LA, that was a cu- kind of where I was going with the, the article was that we, we really don't want to lose track of our overall mission. You know, we shouldn't, you know, come October 1st and, and we look back at the last 30 days and we kind of go, well, you know, am I disappointed? Did I expect something to happen that didn't happen. Well, we need to kind of keep in mind that our, our mission hasn't changed. We're always to be looking for and expecting, and as uh, as it said in Second Peter, we're to be hastening the uh, the day of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord. We're to pray. In fact, that you know, most people we don't think about the Lord's prayer, you know, Thy kingdom come. But in effect, it's prayer that we're to say, and we do say frequently, and we're really asking for the second coming to happen. And and so it's it is appropriate for us always to be mindful of that. And, and to be looking for that. And then another passage that I really like is in Romans 13, uh, 11 through 14. Um, Paul says, uh, it's not one that we're that familiar with because we don't, we don't see it that often. I think it's really powerful. It says, that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly, as in the day, not in rioting and in drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but be, uh, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And so that, you know, that's our mission statement. And we should be encouraged to always remember that as each day goes by, we're one day closer to the coming of the kingdom. And, uh, and so, you know, we don't know exactly what will happen in the next few weeks, um, it may be earth-shattering, or it may be subtle, but regardless, we should not lose uh, lose hope and not lose faith, and uh, and we should expect you know good things uh, from our Father. 
but we should not be surprised when bad things happen because that is the nature of the, the world that we're living in right now, and uh, today perhaps more so than at any time in our lives. And, uh, and so, but God is with us, and, and he remains with us. And um, I know in First John uh, chapter 1, it talks in terms of, of the Lord coming, the Lord, uh, you know, the Lord God is love. And as the, the Lord God of love comes into our lives and fills us more completely, it says the love of God casteth out all fear. And it's like it hurls it away from us. And so um, as we are filled with the Spirit, as we're filled with the love of Jesus Christ, that fear that we could get from worrying about these things, you know, we gotta we have to focus on love, love of God, love of our family, love of our friends, and uh, and that fear will uh, will dissipate rapidly. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And of course, as we see all these things, as you alluded to, culminating. I think the scripture that comes to mind is in Luke twenty one twenty eight. And when these things began to come past, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. And I think that's really important for people to understand that we are, again, prophecy is on fire, and it would have to take a complete deaf, dumb, blind person to not realize what time we're living in. And I think it's actually the most, you know, it's funny, someone said on my show years ago, man, I, I always thought, wouldn't it be cool to talk to Paul about Pentecost? And, you know, if I ever can meet somebody, I want to talk to Paul. And I thought, Paul's going to want to talk to us in the last days. <laughs> what was that like to see the coming of the glorious Savior, you know? So I just think we have to be mindful that our trust, our refuge is really in Jesus Christ. And so in the waning moments, Doug, give out your website for the listeners. Yeah, um, several different ways you can find me. Um, my website, a little awkward, it's faithhappens.com, faith-happens.com. And uh, you can also just do a search on dougwoodward.com, and that should take you to my site. Um, you can find my books on Amazon, and uh, and you can also reach me over email, uh, doug at faith-happens.com. And uh, my books are available in printed format and, and ebook, uh, so Kindle, uh, Nook, Lulu, iBook. Obviously, my, my books are focused a lot on kind of the intersection of uh, faith and history, uh, a lot of emphasis on eschatology, and, and I get into some of these really strange and esoteric subjects that we kind of just barely touched on tonight as well. Maybe we can talk more about those uh, another time. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I look forward to having you back. And I mean, you've wrote some great books. I'd really like to get more into the eschatology part of it. So faith hyphen happens.com is a website folks doug thank you so much for your time this evening and particularly for stopping by on this very auspicious date september 11th 2015 doug thanks so much yes very auspicious date thank you for having me my pleasure folks that was douglas woodward you can check out his handiwork there at faith-happens.com do get a copy of blood on the altar the Coming War, Christian versus Christian, eye-opening book, and very timely indeed. Folks, next week we have a fantastic lineup. We have James Manning, Chuck Baldwin, and many other incredible guests. It's going to be an excellent lineup. And hopefully by Monday, the app will be working. The app for smart device users will be up and running. We're hoping to get the bugs and issues sorted out. So bear with us and we'll get 
things streamlined for you. Please do follow me on YouTube. And if you haven't bookmarked weekendvigilante.com, do so. And also follow me on Twitter. And again, I'm updating my podcasting site as of next week. So bear with me to find the archives in the interim. You can still go to Podomatic. They will be available there, but everything's getting upgraded, streamlined. It's going to be a lot more user-friendly. So that's good news, but there's always some growing pains. Thanks so much for tuning into the broadcast tonight, folks. See you next week. Good night and God bless.